When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, I've been dreading this moment since Saturday night. I bet you have. For those people who don't know, we introduced a new feature. Over on the Patreon page last week during Friday's Power Hour show, a feature that we like to call 20 Bucks We Never Want to See Again. The rules are pretty simple. For various UFC or other fight night events, Ben and I both withdraw $20 from the co-main event podcast coffers, and we head down to a local drinking establishment and play some bets according to Montana's new state sports gambling laws. And then we let the chips fall where they may, I guess you could say, in terms of how those bets play out. First week that we did it was this past weekend for the UFC Fight Night event and headlined by Jarzino Rosenstrike and Augusto Sakai. Suffice to say, I did not come out on top here Yeah, through week one. I went mm-hmm. two and two on my bets you went a completely unreasonable three and one. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, well, you, you can tell me. I'm sure you've got the uh, the total for how much you came came out ahead over there. He, just, here were my slips. Here were right my here. bets. Here were my bets, just to go through them so the people are on the same okay. page with us here. I had Tanner Bozer by KO. That did not transpire. Lost, lost that bet. I had uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio straight up to win. I did win. You had that five one. bucks across the board on all of these, right? That's right. Five dollar bets on all these. Had Santa- Santiago Ponzinibbio to win. He did, so I cashed that one. Had Walt Harris, which uh, mm. might have been the biggest mistake I made on this on this card. Walt Harris obviously did not win, and then I had a prop bet Jarzino Rosenstrike to win via KO. I did cash that one. Now we started out with twenty dollars. And as luck should have it, uh, my total winnings at the end of the night, I guess winnings, I should put in quotation marks, I finished with $19.90. So I came up (laughs) 10 cents short of where I started. I am in the red for a dime as we move forward on this thing. Now, Ben, you did much better than I did. Why don't you tell the people about your bets and how things went for you? Right. No, I mean, before we move on from your bets, though, one way to think about it, Chad, is that you ended up more interested and engaged with this fight card than I have seen you with a non-pay-per-view in a long time. Absolutely. So basically, 
you paid 10 cents to have a good time. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm happy with that's, my experience. And you know what? The, the, uh, the point of the $20 you never want to see again feature over on the Patreon page was to try to get us more invested in these fight night events that otherwise at times feel like they are merely placeholders between pay-per-views. And in that respect, the new segment was a grand slam home run because we were on yeah. the edge of our seats throughout this thing, trying to see how our, our bets would play out. Now, obviously I find myself this Monday morning in the depths of despair down 10 cents and you are riding high on your winnings. So go ahead, yeah. lay it on us. Tell us how you did. Well, well, the most ambitious thing I attempted was a four-fight parlay, and that was dead in the water pretty much immediately because yeah, the first that, fighter I had in that parlay was Maquan Mirakani, who yeah, that, that lost, fell a apart. lost a decision. Uh, honestly, it fell apart before the fight, even, before the event even started, because I also had Tom Brees, who was pulled from the card at the last minute. I, I never heard exactly what happened with him, but something happened. He, he was pulled from the card. That, that fight was scratched altogether. So the parlay was never going to hit. And when Suda's Maquan and Mirakani lost, then that was it. And I was at the five bucks on that one. However, I got five bucks down on saying that Pon Santiago Ponzinibbio and Mikel Bezo would go the distance. They did. That $5 bet netted me $12.25. Um, I had Elir Latifi via decision. That hit. That was a $5 bet that won me $19.75. So that that's your big one right there. Uh, finally, I had um, Jarzino Rosenstrike and Augusto Sukai. Go, I, I took the under one and a half rounds for that one. It finished, obviously, with one second left in the first round. I got to tell you, I was watching this one. They weren't doing a whole lot during the first round. Yeah. Augusto Sakai is just pretty much circling the perimeter of the cage while uh, Rosenstrike searches for him and is not really able to find him very often. And I was going, uh-oh, I could be in trouble. And then just unleashes in the final 10 seconds, ends up getting the finish that one cashed for $11.50. So I believe right now I am sitting at $43.50, I think, for uh, my $20. Really, the, the lesson that I have taken from this, Chad, I took $20 and I turned it into $43. The only thing I did wrong was I didn't bet enough money. Imagine <laughs> if I had bet two hundred grand. you know? Yeah. I'd be sitting pretty right now. You definitely I wouldn't would. even showed up for this podcast. That's I, I really I just need to I need more capital. I need to just put more money on the table. I that's, think you have that's the one, lesson I've taken. One hundred percent learned the right lessons from this one week excursion mm -hmm. into the world of MMA sports gambling. Now We'll be over on the Patreon page the rest of the week. I think we're going to talk about this some more because suffice to say, I got a bone to pick with you vis-a-vis -vis the place, the crux where the evening really shifted for both of us, which would have been during the uh, Tanner Bozer, Alir Latifi fight. And uh, so we'll talk about that more this week over on the Patreon page. Remember, if you want to get down with that, you got to go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and join the team over there where we do multiple additional podcasts every single week, including Friday's Power Hour, which we have been talking about so far on this show. We also have the Wednesday live chat and then the Thursday movie club. Now, a couple of exciting things are happening over on the Patreon page this week. Number one, 
We're going to be hosting a UFC 263 Zoom fight party on Saturday night for all the people that want to get down uh, with the double championship bill this weekend down there in Arizona. So those are always fun. You got to go over to the Patreon page and sign up. That's available for all levels of patrons if you want to take part in the UFC 263 fight party. We've also got kicking off this week for our Thursday Movie Club podcasts, which are available to top t- top tier patrons, top level patrons of the Co-Main Event Podcast, where we're going to be uh, this year, this week, we're going to be initiating Nicolas Cage Movie Month, where mm-hmm. we are going to watch four Nicolas Cage movies. And I got to be honest, Ben, I was looking at the uh, the Nicolas Cage filmography, the resume of this man. And this is going to be some tough choices because there's a lot of movies that we could pick. There's a lot of different directions we could go here with Nicolas Cage movie month. And almost every one of them is going to be awesome. But uh, we're going to have there's some, a lot to choose from some decisions to general. make over there. Well, we we need to start the, the first one. We need to, to let everybody know what the first one is. And I could tell you right now what the first Nicolas Cage film is going to be. I mean, it seems to me like Raising Arizona is probably a uh, a gimme pick here for one of these four. But what did you have in mind? Moonstruck. We're watching in- Moonstruck. Interesting. That is not what I had in mind. That mm-hmm. seems like uh, that seems like a big price to pay. Twenty five percent of our Nicolas Cage movie budget will be spent on Moonstruck. But and you uh, will regret nothing. Okay. You know Moonstruck, when I up first. You know, when I lived in Brooklyn. I lived on the street where they filmed Moonstruck. Wow, you're and you're just going to give away that fascinating tidbit now and not save it for the movie club? Well, I got I mean, I got more to say. That's just a little Seems tease like a blunder. right there. Fatal blunder. In, in any case, I don't know that saying we're going to watch Moonstruck is really the greatest tease, but if you want to join the team, you know how to do it. Go over to patreoncom main event sign up. We got three easy tiers of patronage to choose from. We have a lot of fun over there all week. If you're not if you're not over there, you're kind of missing out. I got to be perfectly honest with you. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash, an LA-based production duo. If you like what you watch and hear from them on the show, you can check out more over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com/foreigncash. Again, that's C A C H E Foreign Cash. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event podcast in round number 1. Will this finally be the one, the one where Leon Edwards gets the big fight he deserves and it comes off as scheduled and it reaches a definitive ending and oh my God, I'm making myself so nervous just reading this. And in round number two, Figgy Smalls puts his flyweight title on the line in a rematch of his UFC 256 draw with Brandon Moreno, where the key to victory for the champion might be steer clear of the groin, bro. And in round number three, Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori are also going to do it again, brother, in a middleweight title fight that feels like it's happening just because. You know what that means. Don't fuck around and lose this one, Izzy. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Jizzy B, who emails the podcast frequently. This week, he wanted to make a point that we introduce him properly as a recurring character from the Grand Theft Auto video game, I believe from GTA San Andreas, but I'm not quite sure about that, where uh, Jizzy B is, according to his uh, 
internet presence, a notorious pimp as part of the okay. GTA video game world. So that's that's where Jizzy B comes to us from. This week he writes, Why is it that motherfuckers continuously do not take Jarzino Rosenstrike's pimp hand seriously, particularly in the closing seconds of the round, see Overeem and now Sakai, and also feel they can turn their back on him and it'll be okay. Also see Sakai and the JDS fight. Where does the biggie boy go from here? Now, this is a good question because Jarzino Rosenstrike does seem to have an uncanny ability to kind of hit hit walk-off home runs here, finishing Augusto Sakai with one second on the clock left in the first round, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. And of course, the last second victory over Alistair Overeem from back in December of 2019. That one came with just a few ticks left in the final, the fifth and final round between those guys. Um, I don't know. Is this just pure... Uh, you know, uh, just just pure chance for Jarzino Rosenstrike? Is it just a coincidence that this guy finishes these these fights so close to the end of the round? Or do you think that Rosenstrike knows he's got that power and that, that he puts a little blitz on near the end of the round and it just so happens a couple times over now he's come away with these somewhat shocking like last second KO victories right before the break? Well, this one, at least from what he claimed afterwards in the post-fight press conference, that he said that he turned it on at knowing that the end of the round was close, that he heard his coach say like 15 seconds left, and he saw that Sakai is just sort of circling to try to get away from him, and caught him up against the fence and said that he intentionally, knowing how little time was, really turned it up on him. Uh, the the Overeem one was a little different situation because it seemed like he was on his way to hit, losing one on the scorecards and had to get crazy and and try to pull something off there. And the, the surprising one about this one is you look at those two punches that land and on the replay, it's hard to understand how those are the punches that drop Sakai. Yeah. They just don't seem like they're that hard and they don't seem like they land that clean. They're, they're really in short and it seems like it just from what the, the eye test, it seems like they're just sort of pushing these punches and not getting a whole lot into them. And yet they put him flat on his back. So he must have some, some, some of that. Francis Ngannou power and that he doesn't have to hit you cleanly all the time and he could still hurt you. Yeah, no, I agree. He definitely has the the power to, to get this done, to stop people kind of in the blink of an eye. Now, the question of where does the biggie boy go from here? I guess there are, I guess there's good news and bad news here about for Jarzino Rosenstrike, I should say. The good news is that the man is 33 years old, which is basically a fetus in the terms of the UFC heavyweight division. He's got, we would ex- expect, a lot of time here to, you know, to grow into his role in the UFC. And and if he continues fighting at, at a high level, he's going to be around this division for a long time to come. And as we all know, the heavyweight division, not the most uh, crowded in just terms of overall talent. With the time he's got left, it seems like he's he's got a lot of runway here to make good things happen for himself. He's six and two overall in the UFC, twelve and two overall in his career. Uh, the bad news, I suppose, is this loss to Francis Ngannou back at UFC 249 in May of last year. Just 20 seconds that fight went. Francis Ngannou kind of blitzed uh, the biggie boy with some some haymakers and and knocked him out in emphatic and, and highlight real fashion as your guy Francis Ngannou is inclined to do. The other loss, unanimous decision loss and sort of a tepid fight to Cyril gone uh, just in February of this year. So just in terms of the heavyweight title picture and that previous loss to Francis Ngannou, I think it goes without saying the biggie boy's got some work to do 
before he is once again recognized as like a top heavyweight title contender. You know, uh, Ngannou's apparently, allegedly going to do this thing against Derek Lewis. You still got Stipe Miocic waiting in the wings. There's the specter of John Jones still lurking around with his new advisor trying to get some stuff done uh, in terms of a matchup against Francis Ngannou. So the biggie boy, he's still up there, but he's kind of on the outside looking in, at least for the time being. Of course, as you know, in the heavyweight division, you can, anyone can catch an injury and you need a last second, last minute replacement. And the biggie boy probably shakes up pretty handsomely in that department. But I, I just, Ben, I would think he's probably looking at a couple more contender fights, at least maybe against someone, you know, of the ilk of like a, a, an Alexander Volkov type individual, uh, you know, maybe a Curtis Blades style guy here moving forward. It's, it's, he's got to get another couple wins here before I think we start talking seriously about putting Rosenstrike in there with Nganu again, don't you think? Yeah, but the good news for him is that nobody really, with the exception of Derek Lewis right now, is in a situation where they might conceivably be called for a UFC heavyweight title fight. Everybody, like if everybody else who's sitting around kind of near him in the rankings, they also are going to have to fight again just because we don't really know what we're doing with that division at this point. It's still in that sort of holding pattern where we're waiting to see what the next move is and then how that next move is going to affect everything else. And so there's several people on that, like in the top 10 who he hasn't fought yet. He's not one of these heavyweights where, you know, he's, he's got losses to some people and, and wins over others, but like he has pretty much faced everybody. Like there's a bunch of fresh matchups possible for him. It's just a question of which ones you're going to get and which ones are more stylistically favorable for him. Cause it's like, you know, you go up against Curtis Blades, we're going to find out how, uh, the biggie boy's ground game has come along. You go up against Alexander Volkov, you're going to find out if you can solve some of those same problems that you had against Cyril Gaon. And so like there are kind of nothing but tough fights out there. But everybody's in a similar situation. Nobody can sit around at this point and go, uh, I'm just going to wait until they tell me that the title shot is mine because that shit ain't happening. Yeah. And how bad moving forward into the future does the UFC need to troll John Jones? So, you know, after Francis Ngannou fights Derek Lewis, are they going to be like, the biggie boy is next? That's the fight yeah. that makes sense. So that could play into your advantage if you are Jarzino Rosenstrike. Here's two questions I'm going to put together because they – concern the same topic the first one comes to us from our guy the great dane he writes can we please not talk about the quote unquote fight from sunday night follow that up with this one from chubby checkers who writes aldrich paul box matched floyd mayweather literally just found out that this was a true thing that happened in real life so we are definitely in a simulation that is glitching, right? The fuck is happening? Why the fuck do I have to know who Tim and Johnny Paul are? And why am I making it worse by asking a question about them? What Stephen King bullshit curse power do they have over us? So as the entire sports and indeed it's seemingly the entire pop culture world knows, last night, Sunday night, you had your exhibition fight uh, between the younger Paul brother uh, Jefferson Paul and Floyd Mayweather. I did not watch this fight. Did you watch this fight? I did. You watched this fight? Did you pay for it? Oh, you got the Trillers uh, or uh, this is Showtime, right? So you probably this was on over Showtime. There and watched I, it. On I the- was. I, to be fair, I was instructed to watch the fight. Okay, this is for for work, for work purposes. It was not probably not what I necessarily would have chosen to do with my Sunday night because I kind of knew. 
that this was basically what we were going to do. I mean, I thought maybe Floyd Mayweather would try a little bit harder to see if he could go ahead and finish this thing. But, uh, I mean, first of all, why does the Great Dane not want to talk about the Chad Ochocinco fight? I assume that's what he meant by the fight, right? That was the yeah. big one. Well, he said big it was one a knockdown. Knockdown yeah. in that one, right? Mm-hmm. Chad Ochocinco cut a, cut a hot one right on the jaw there. It kind of face-planted him for a moment. Uh, you know, I, I, I sympathize with the, the sentiment being expressed by Chubby Checkers here, which is, I don't necessarily feel like I want to know about it. And why do I feel like I'm forced to know about it? And if I then even start talking about why the fuck is this a thing that I have to know about, I'm feeding into the thing. I'm, I'm a part of the problem at that point. I've had this same sort of inner conflict, this inner turmoil that Chubby Checkers describes. And I think, I'm not going to say that there's a whole lot of stuff that we should give the Paul brothers credit for, but you do have to give them credit for that, that they have successfully sort of created this thing where they are an issue that must be addressed in combat sports. And that is kind of unavoidable. Even if you're just speaking up to say, I'm sick of hearing about them, you're playing right into their hands. That is kind of, that's, that is the realm in which they live. And they're pretty good at it. We talked a little bit on Friday's Power Hour about uh, the other Paul brother, Ezekiel Paul, uh, making those comments about fighter pay in the UFC and Dana White and all that stuff, and being like, eh, "I don't, I don't necessarily believe that that is an issue that he's really super passionate about and is like sincerely interested in seeing something done on. I think it's more like a calculation that he realizes this will get me in the headlines on the MMA sites and get MMA fans talking, and yet." They're good at keeping themselves as the the center of attention and as a topic of conversation. And that's a surprisingly large amount of this business, as it turns out. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Just like in regard to or the skill, I guess, of keeping themselves in the public eye and seemingly either having lucked into or having cannily... uh, weaseled their way into this combat sports subculture where for whatever reason we seem specifically vulnerable to this kind of troll job like they they brought what appears to be the exact perfect recipe to both attract eyeballs and maybe bring over the people who knew them from their youtube celebrity and also make everyone in mma and boxing so mad that they want to watch just to either see what the fuss is about or to see the Paul brothers eventually be served with their comeuppance. Uh, and as I have said before, like the thing that startles me the most is how upfront and honest both of the Paul brothers are about that. When you ask them it's kind of like a magician showing you how they do their magic tricks. And yet worse, we still just keep showing up to the magic show and watching the rabbit come out of the hat and having our fucking minds blown, even though the magician has already explained to us how they, they keep doing the tricks. Uh, I'm going to read this next question because it's, it's, it's Paul adjacent. Uh, this one from Derek Smelzer who writes, I have finally come to terms with the constant Paul brother talk in the MMA space. However, 
when I saw that Julius was fighting T. Wood, I was confused because I thought he was fighting a Mayweather impersonator. Turns out that was Randall. All confusion aside, yes, this is entirely not confusing at this point. I will totally yeah. support the Paul dudes as long as they keep saying stuff like, quote, these fighters are risking their lives. You can quite literally die in the ring and they need to be compensated more. I'm a big proponent of that movement and of being in control. Fuck that shit. Fuck, fuck Dana White. End quote. Do you dudes think Julius Paul can make enough note uh, noise to at least get the fighters to recognize they should be doing something about it. Now, we, we we've spoke on this, and you just mentioned it a minute ago, Ben. That we, you know, I don't. It's not as though the Paul brothers are doing this out of the goodness of their own hearts. I don't think they are really taking on the fighter pay issue uh, in a real full throated, uh, you know, uh, good hearted way here. I don't think that they really have much interest in that now they start signing MMA fighters over there on Showtime paying them a lot of money and they can go fight in Bellator or Trillers or whatever. Maybe I change my tune, but it just doesn't seem like this is an argument that is made in good faith by the Paul brothers when they make it. I will, however, quote tweet the current heavyweight champion of the UFC, Francis Ngannou, who tweeted 16 hours ago in the wake of the uh, Paul Mayweather fight. It's crazy to think that Logan Paul, 0-1, just made $20 million on a boxing exhibition. And then in all caps from Francis Ngannou, what are we doing wrong? And then chin scratch emoji. Uh, It's kind of, to me, it is, I guess it's a good thing, but also somewhat frustrating to see Francis Ngannou like tiptoe right up to the line of either saying out loud or figuring out what in fact they are doing wrong. Uh, because clearly what they're doing wrong is like letting the UFC keep all the money. That's, that's the thing that, that the MMA fighters have gotten wrong up to this point. It's not that that money doesn't exist in right. mixed martial arts, maybe not 120 million for each or both fighters to split from one event to another, but a lot more money, 85% more money than what the fighters are getting paid at this point exists and is out there for the splitting and as it happens right now the ufc has just taken it all so that's what's that's what you're doing wrong big fran that's what's that's what's gone wrong here is that one entity in this arrangement is keeping all the money and it's not you it's the other guy that that's what you're doing wrong i think that the there is a possibility that these guys come along and just talking about it and serving as like kind of this glaring counterexample like oh you guys are so skilled in this super dangerous sport that requires a knowledge of even more martial arts and a wider array of ways to go in there and get yourself hurt and here comes a guy who kind of barely even knows the rudiments of a different martial art a different combat sport and he's getting paid way more than you guys and so it's such a contrast that they can't help but notice and, and you get stuff like this from Francis Ngannou you also get stuff like Paulo Costa who we saw some clips of him in there in the ring with some of the Paul boys mixing it up in the gym uh, getting to know them working with them a little bit and then lo and behold when we hear he's supposed to fight Jared Cannonier, and now he's out of that fight and was like, hey, I never signed and said I would do that fight in the first place. The UFC announced it before I had signed a bout agreement, so I was never in. Like, you guys think I'm pulling out, but I was never in, and they're, they need to pay me more if they want me to go and fight these fights in a main event. And 
it's hard not to draw some kind of link there. Like you're hanging out with the Paul boys and the next thing you know, you start to realize that you're being underpaid. And I, I do think that there's a little bit of a, like a, a chance that just those guys showing up gets a few more UFC fighters talking amongst themselves. And you, you do see a little bit more of this groundswell about fighter pay issues. My question is, where do you go from there? Like, what's the next step? Because just getting mad online has not proved to be the thing that changes the UFC pay structure. We've seen that before. We've seen it. It goes up and it goes down. Sometimes it's more of a conversation than others. And the UFC always just feels like, okay, you know what? Let them grouse about it for a while if they want to. Everybody always wants more money. Dana White's going to look at his page in the promoter playbook, say the things he always says, and then it'll eventually go away. And sometimes when you get high-profile guys, like we're seeing right now with John Jones being like, and Francis Ngannou also to a lesser extent, being like, you want us to do this monster fight? You're going to need this monster payday. And if I'm the UFC, I go, look, I know how this ends. We, we have it out with some of these guys. The, the high profile guys are making a lot of noise about it. But once they get the deal that they want, then it'll go away. At yeah. least they'll disappear from the conversation. That's the way it has always gone for the UFC is I feel like, okay, every once in a while you get some of these guys who are in a position to really advocate for some kind of change. But then once they get the money that they feel like is, is what they're after, then they, they're quiet on the issue after that. And then it'll all kind of like the momentum will fade. And that, that has always how it's gone. So I'm wondering, like, even if you do have a bunch more people than usual being more vocal about it and having more of a desire to sort of question these entrenched systems that make it the way it is in this sport and not in similar combat sports, you got to show me how they get from there to actually taking some kind of action. Cause yeah. right now it's hard for me to picture that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, currently it seems like your best hope for any kind of actual immediate action on UFC pay structure would be either this class action lawsuit that is ongoing turns out in the favor of the fighters and either challenges or eliminates some of the provisions in the UFC contract that might be illegal or a couple of guys like John Jones and Francis Ngannou try to make a legal play to get out of their UFC contracts to, uh, to have to promote a fight between the two of them on their own, uh, you know, or three, the Ali act gets right. extended to mixed martial arts. I think those are the three things that could happen with the most immediacy that, you know, the, for all the talk that we spend talking about a fighter's union, it doesn't seem like that's in the immediate offing and uh, the legality of it, I think would be a question mark just in terms of what a bunch of independent contractors could do legally speaking to their employer, even if they did organize. And on top of that, just the innate difficulties in organizing this particular workforce, which is so international and spread out and rarely gets the opportunity to meet as one. And where you have a bunch of different like cultural and political uh, values all coming together in in terms of a, a union. I think that would be really hard to get off the ground at this point. And not so a think, great deal of trust among them for each other. Yeah. 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 So it seems like the the three things that I mentioned before are probably the the most realistic way that anything could get done on that front, but like it's interesting now at least to me to to see Francis Ngannou raise these questions and John Jones of course continues to raise these questions and we'll just we'll see where it goes if anywhere because up to this point in the sport as you mentioned these these problems have not 
resolved in any way. So yeah. who knows what will happen. All right. Last question this week comes to us from Dan Alexander, who writes, just heard the news of Ariel Hawani moving on from ESPN. Uh, whilst I saw and listened to him less since his move there, me being from England, I still have a great deal of affection for him as he seems like one of the good guys in the sport. Do you, you guys know Helwani on a personal level? Firstly, is he okay? Seemed to be from his YouTube video. Secondly, uh, what are his next moves as it, it'll be great to see him return to a more independent environment, please discourse. Uh, so yeah, this news just came out yesterday. Ariel tweeted that he's going to be done at ESPN on June 15th. Uh, and he will be moving on elsewhere. There is a report out from the New York Post that says he will be headed at least in part to the Action Network, which uh, is not necessarily the platform I would have thought of first. But uh, they are a betting platform. He would be MMA's betting ex- or the MMA expert there. It sounds like uh, Darren Ravel has already signed there, as well as golf writer Jason Sobel. Uh, this all according to the New York Post story by Justin Tash. Sounds like um, Helwani might also do some work with Dan Lebetard's new media platform, Meadowlark, uh, which would be interesting if that if that comes to pass. But you know, we had reports out in in recent months that. Uh, Ariel wanted to get paid what he thought was his true worth at ESPN. And so there was a bit of a contract standoff and now it, it seems like this is how it resolves. And like, frankly, the only thing I feel like is happy for the guy, if he is going to move to a place where, uh, you know, they will pay him more, uh, in, in more closely to what he feels like he is, is earned or is, is worth. And like, if he gets to do more different kinds of uh, media that he is interested in, like to me, that, that seems like a positive move for him. Uh, and I think it just like, if it, this action network thing turns out to be true, it just like speaks to the, like the buying power and the current rise in sports gambling sites, which appear to be like taking over a bigger and bigger and bigger piece of the pie in this space, in this media space, which I guess someone's got to do it. So uh, sports gambling sites are going to take a turn at this point. But yeah, like the only thing that I even have to say on the matter is that it seems if if he's happy with it and he's getting paid more than I'm happy for him because I think he deserves it. The two things here on this. First, I reached out to Ariel after I heard this news um, and I was just trying to communicate to him, like maybe don't sign anything yet because the CME could make a competitive offer. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we got we, this we gambling. Use... We got gambling money coming in now too. So that's exactly what I'm saying, Chad. I mean, look at these betting slips. You got that twenty three dollars at your disposal. I'm gonna up my bets from twenty dollars to two hundred grand this coming week, and the money's basically there. Like, yeah. that's you know, we we will pay you out of my extensive gambling winnings, Daryl. Just think about it. You know, mm-hmm. that's all I'm saying. Think about how. The, the, I mean, obviously we'd have to get government approval for a merger, uh, of that size and, and, and importance. That could be an issue. It's very possible that, you know, the Biden administration, uh, Congress, they're going to look at this and be like, Ariel Helwani joining forces with the co-main event podcast. No, that, that cannot be allowed. It would be yeah, too, be too big, too giant a media uh, enterprise. And it's just, it'd be bad. Fair enough. The other thing I would wonder, though, is we had heard before about how Ariel was dealing with some of the contract negotiation stuff at ESPN. And you know Dana White doesn't have any love for Ariel Helwani, just basically because of all the the years of Ariel Helwani doing his job yeah. have, have pissed off Dana White. And it makes you wonder about like when if, if 
Dana White would prefer an ESPN, his broadcast partner that doesn't have Ariel Helwani there. And if he ends up getting his wish, I mean, Ariel said that ESPN did offer him a contract, but that, you know, he chose not to sign that and it's going to go a different direction. Um, does ESPN as this big platform for the sport and that also does a bunch of like reporting on MMA, does it get, does it end up serving fans better or worse? As a result of something like this, I don't think that you lose Ariel Helwani and it ends up being a good thing for you. I, yeah. He's he's a, he's just got such a, a long history in this sport and a lot of great relationships with people and does a lot of good reporting. And he was kind of one of the guys at ESPN where if you hear Ariel Helwani reporting on something, it's not you, you don't see it and go, mm, that's just the UFC is telling us this routed through this guy. Because you know how, like, what the relationship is there. And with him gone, you lose that. You lose a lot of that credibility. And, I mean, you're ESPN, you're probably going to be fine. So, like, I'm sure you're not worried about, like, something nobody's going to listen to or trust ESPN. But you don't get turned into a better or stronger media outlet on the MMA front by losing Ariel Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and roll right into round number one. Well, Ben, Nate Diaz returns to the Octagon this weekend for the first time since November of 2019 when he lost at UFC 244 to Jorge Masvidal via third round Dr. Stoppage. Diaz is one and two in his last three UFC fights. Uh, aside from Masvidal, he also has the loss to Conor McGregor in their rematch at UFC 202 and a win over Anthony Pettis at UFC 241. As we have discussed at length, Leon Edwards is a guy in this division who has been looking for a high profile fight for a long, long time. And it just seems to have eluded him here. He got into this fight with Bilal Muhammad in March of this year that, of course, ended in a very unsatisfactory no contest after an accidental eye poke. A bit of a surprise to me, I guess, to see him roll out of that no contest and then finally land what I guess you could consider to be the kind of fight he's been after all along with a very, very high profile opponent against uh, here against Nate Diaz. But I guess just talk first of all about what you think about this matchup, if you were surprised by it. And I guess ultimately like what we expect to see in the cage this weekend in a fight between Nate Diaz, who has not been particularly active. And when he has been active, hasn't amassed too many wins and a guy like Leon Edwards who for all intents and purposes despite the no contest against Bilal Muhammad seems to be at the top of his game in this division right now like how is this one going to go assuming we actually get everybody in the cage and and the referee says fight yeah the the thing that surprised me still is that Nate Diaz accepted this fight I can see why the UFC would look at it and be like, well, okay, hey, you got Leon Edwards. He's a good fighter, but it doesn't have a ton of shine on the name. You need somebody, a high-profile guy that he could go in there and beat and, you know, get him a little bit of a boost. I could see how they would think like, oh, let's call Nate. The worst he can say is no. 
I'm surprised that Nate Diaz picks up the phone and is like, hell yeah, I'll do that. I'll fight Leon Edwards. In part because he seemed to have gotten to a point in his career recently where he's only interested in you know, big, high-profile sort of fights against another big name. And the kind that they might not necessarily lead anywhere, but as a one-off kind of thing, there's a spotlight on them and there, there's, there's an immediate fan interest. And Leon Edwards has long been that guy where he presents a really big risk to other fighters because he's super good, but is not super well-known. And so a lot of people have been looking at him being like, I don't know if it's worth the considerable risk to fight this guy if even if you beat him only the hardcores know what that really means to beat him and so in that sense it's a surprising fight for Nate Diaz to take also stylistically it seems like a nightmare matchup for him like on the on the best day the best version of Nate Diaz that we've seen this seems like a nightmare matchup for him doesn't it because especially at welterweight when he's had to fight bigger guys who can wrestle a little bit who have good all-around games, good striking games, are good athletes, but also are like big dudes who can muscle you around. He hasn't done very well with those. Yeah. And all of that stuff just describes Leon Edwards, like you know, right down to the core. Yeah. All those all that stuff that gives Nate Diaz problems, that's what Leon Edwards is. And you're telling me that now at the age of like 36, Nate Diaz is gonna show up after you know, a year and a half away and all those problems that he's had his entire career are going to be fixed against Leon Edwards? Because I find that hard to picture. Yeah, that's exactly Leon Edwards' game. He would love to keep you out at range where he can get off uh, with his strikes. And then if, if you know, there's a hint of danger or there's a, a, a time when he feels like you're open for it, he won't hesitate to take you down and do stuff to you on the mat, which does seem like it would be a nightmare situation for Nate Diaz. And you look at the odds on this thing and it would seems like the odds makers see it that way as well. Leon Edwards going off anywhere from minus four seventy to minus five ninety. Uh, yeah, so I see him close. as high as uh, six to one. I mean, he's the biggest by far the biggest favorite on the card. Yeah. He's, he's close to a six to one favorite here. Nate Diaz plus four twenty five. Uh, in some places, so a little bit more than a four to one underdog, and that to me raises a, a question again of like with the Diaz brothers. Again, we we had some, you know, I guess just breaking news out earlier today. Kevin Ioli tweeted that he talked to Dana White, and Dana White says he fully expects Nick Diaz to fight again in the UFC later this year. And we start to to get into this question of, I guess, the question of diminishing returns with the Diaz brothers, but also sort of like what people will be tuning in to this fight to see and then what they are actually going to see could be two very different things, uh, which could be a rude awakening for some fans who may have not heard of Leon Edwards or don't know what to expect and tune into this fight to watch Nate Diaz. Uh, I guess the question at this point for me would be, what do you think Leon Edwards gains if he beats Nate Diaz? If this thing plays out according to chalk and it is just kind of like a walkthrough for Leon Edwards, he goes out there and looks every bit the five to one favorite and wins this fight. Do you think at this point in the year 2021 that he gains a tremendous amount from that victory? Well, if we're just speaking about like logically in terms of rankings, what it should get you to beat Nate Diaz, eh, maybe not. But I will tell you this. If Leon Edwards goes out there, just beats Nate Diaz pillar to post, looks great doing it, and then gets on the mic and is like, people need to stop sleeping on me. I'm the best welterweight in the world. and You need to give me that title shot so I can go take on Kamaru Usman and prove it. And, you know, he's standing there with some of Nate Diaz's blood on him as he says that. 
If I'm Colby Covington watching that one at home, I go, uh-oh. Because it is entirely conceivable. In a fight like this, a high-profile one against a guy with a name like Nate, Nate Diaz, and you already have a pretty good track record as Leon Edwards in, in recent years, even if there's been some bad luck mixed in there. If he shows up and really looks good in this one and makes all the right moves on the mic and afterwards, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the UFC goes, all right, that one looks like there's some momentum there. We need something to do with Kamaru Usman. Like, let's go ahead and do that fight instead of doing a rematch with Colby Covington. Like that, that isn't like maybe not make a ton of sense, but then again, like we just came off of Kamaru Usman doing a rematch with Jorge Masvidal that didn't make a ton of sense. And still, if you feel like it, it's going to sell well and then get people talking, get people to pay attention. That's all that really matters. Like it's, it's entirely believable that Leon Edwards could use this to springboard his way into a title shot. Yeah. The entire welterweight top 10 at this point is Colby Covington, Gilbert Burns, Leon Edwards, Stephen Thompson, Vicente Luque, Michael Chiesa, Jorge Masvidal, Neil Magny, Damian Maya, and Jeff Neal. So if you look at the top half of that thing, obviously uh, Kamar Usman has just recently defeated both Gilbert Burns and Colby Covington, who are the number two and number one contenders technically in the rankings. Leon Edwards at number three. And then you look around the rest of that that list aside from Michael Chiesa I'm not totally sure if I see any real uh actual viable contenders there that that wouldn't comprise like a, a rematch or would would provide like a a sizable promotional upside like I guess the the real positive of a Colby Covington rematch would be that maybe you could sell some pay-per-views but anymore I'm not even sure like what what kind of draw that that becomes with Colby Covington having, you know, essentially been out of action for a while now and, and having already lost what was a, you know, a kind of a, uh, a decent fight to watch against Kamaru Usman, but still not the kind of thing where a rematch really makes sense. So I, I agree with you. Leon Edwards comes out of this one with the win. It would seem to me like it's either him or Michael Chiesa would be kind of in the in the lane for a title shot against a champion who has made no bones about the fact that he wants to stay busy and wants to keep fighting people. Yeah, I mean, you know, Leon Edwards would be a rematch for Kamaru Usman too, but it was so long ago and I, I, a lot of people probably didn't even see that one. And so, I mean, Colby Covington can still say, hey, I'm the one who has done the best against Kamaru Usman, especially in recent years. And that is true. And like, the you know, Dana White has talked about it and sounded like that he liked the idea of a, a rematch there. But the Leon Edwards situation, like, he garnered a little bit of sympathy when we saw him getting one bad break after another. We, he seems like he, as an all-around fighter, he's really turned into something. He could go out there, and Nate Diaz is like, especially this version of Nate Diaz, seems like a tailor-made opponent for him to look really good against. I just, there's a part of me, though, that goes, is, is Leon Edwards just going to be snake bit? You know, he had that fight against Bilal Mohammed where it was like, okay, here's an opportunity for him to look good. And he gets, he looks really great in the first round. And then there's an eye poke and like accidentally pokes Mohammed in the eye, can't continue. And it looks like, oh man, here we go again. Like there's a part of me that's going to be watching this, waiting for something weird to happen. Waiting for a light fixture to fall out of the, the, the truss and hit Leon Edwards in the head. Something like that. Yeah. Um, Cause otherwise like he, he should absolutely beat Nate Diaz and should be able to look good doing it. But you don't know. So there's been weird stuff going on for Leon Edwards lately. Yeah, it was very surprising to me that the UFC decided to move on from that 
Leon Edwards Bilal Muhammad matchup, which appeared to be two welterweights that they were pretty high on and matching them together, kind of like the ultimate UFC matchmaking move to find out which one of them would advance to the next level, especially when you consider they are both on this card. Like Leon Edwards is yes. going to fight Nate Diaz. Bilal Muhammad fights Damian Maya, which is probably going to be the fight just before that. So that that's just like a strange move for the UFC. So um, I don't know, man. We will see. We will see how it all plays out and who who takes the next step toward being a viable contender for uh, Kamara Usman. Let's well, do. You know, fucking- I mean, with 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 Bilal Muhammad being on this same card with Leon Edwards, if if Nate Diaz messes around and misses a flight. If Nate Diaz, you know, takes a wrong turn uh, coming out the hotel room and, and doesn't make it to the arena or something like that, you know, with a quickness, Bilal Muhammad is going to get yanked out of that Demi and Maya fight, and we're going to really quickly spin a, a rematch narrative. Like that—that's yeah. got to be the thinking, including them on the same card. All right, let's go ahead and do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your "Are you fucking kidding me" this week? Well, Chad, I mentioned earlier that I paid for this Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul boxing match. It was, I was told to do it by my employer. They said they would reimburse me. So, okay. Like I'm doing all that stuff. I got the Showtime app. I go on there. For one thing, the Showtime app doesn't even want me to know that there is a pay-per-view boxing match on when I, when I, Click it on, on on Sunday afternoon. I have to like I have to know what I'm doing and know where to go and where to find it. All this stuff. I got to jump through a bunch of hoops. Got like the app open on the TV. Got the laptop open. All this stuff. It's a pain in the ass just to buy it. I keep I keep trying to buy it, and it seems like I don't know if it's the overloaded web traffic or or what. It's not really working very smoothly. Finally, I managed to give Showtime forty nine dollars and ninety nine cents. And then I go to the streaming thing of the pay-per-view event, and it just doesn't work at all. Like, not even, like, a bad stream or anything. It just won't even come close to starting. And it's that way for the entire event. The way I watched it, Chad, is that, you know, a friendly a friendly Twitter user sent me a link. and was like, hey, I hear you can watch that boxing match via this link if you just click it. And maybe keep it to yourself. And so I did that. I watch a pirated link, which I could have done for free. Yeah. Of this boxing match. Every once in a while, going back to check in on the Showtime app, check in on Showtime.com. Never works. It never even gives me a glimmer of hope that it's going to work. Took my money, though. Sent me the receipt. And basically leaves me with the, the impression going away. Next time, don't waste your time trying to pay us because you don't have to and it won't work anyway. And it's not like we didn't know that there's going to be a lot of interest in this fight because we've been flogging it on social media and everywhere we can to try to get people to watch it. And then when they do, it ends up uh, we can't even show you not not even a single punch. Won't show you one second of any fight that you paid for. Are you fucking kidding me? You're going to be out of here trying to make a case against online piracy. But really what you just did here was prove that it is very useful and viable and just a, a way better alternative than paying you money for the thing that you then will not deliver. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Uh, I look forward to you making that case in court. 
Uh, you know what? I've sent them. I, they had a the little link where you're like, we understand some people may have had problems with this event. If you would like a refund. And I clicked on the thing and just like explained to them like, look, I paid you for the thing. Uh, it didn't work even a little bit. Yeah. So like, where's my money? And also, if you're gonna you if you put me on that thriller list or whatever, where you try to tell me like, hey, we know who illegally streamed this thing. I'll tell you, Ben folks streamed it after he paid you the money for the thing you didn't deliver. Uh, I mean, not a jury in the world, Chad, will convict me. Uh Ben, I have to assume that Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori knew they were going to be on television. Mm-hmm. On Saturday night. Okay. Right? I see where we're going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was the worst UFC hype piece I have seen in a while. Content notwithstanding. Vittori shows up wearing a shirt he almost certainly got at a swap meet. Right? Just looking like a backup dancer for PM Dawn in 1993. With, with an Italian flag tossed over the couch. Like he realized he had a Zoom meeting and there was a big stain on the couch that he needed to cover. So he just just tossed the flag right over yeah. there. Meanwhile, Adesanya becomes like the 10,000th UFC fighter to show up for an interview wearing his bathrobe. We, we, gotta, we gotta stop with the bathrobe, you guys. The bathrobe thing, <laughs> it's over. It was, it was cute for a while. But it's over, man. The bathrobe thing. And like, I, I was trying to figure out where he was. It looked like he was like in an airport bathroom or something. Like middleweight champion of the world shows up to an interview in an airport bathroom wearing his bathrobe. You fucking yeah, kidding thought, me with this shit? I, I got the vibe that it was the, the lavatory on a cruise ship. Yeah, that's what it looked like. You fucking and, but then me? they had themselves a, a scintillating adult conversation after that, right? I, I'm Looks not even going to get into it. I don't even. I don't even need to get into it. That part of it. Are you fucking you're, kidding you're, me? So your "Are you fucking kidding me?" here is based entirely on wardrobe and setting. Yeah, the rest of it, everybody already okay. knows. <laughs> fucking kidding me. The rest of the "Are you fucking kidding me?" speaks for itself. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. I don't want to jog your memory back to December 12, 2020. Your dude, Davison Figueredo, Figgy Smalls himself, rolls up in there against the assassin baby at uh, UFC 256. Unbeknownst to us, Figgy Smalls coming in basically straight out of the hospital room, goes in to a five-round flyweight title fight, and these dudes just put on an absolute goddamn banger. Yeah. One of the best fights of the year, back and forth, uh, point deductions for a particularly bad groin strike from Davis and Figueredo. But this fight has a bunch of wild swings in it, a bunch of crazy action from start to finish, 25 minutes in the books, and then we find out we have ourselves a majority draw. So you knew right then. You knew we had to do it again, brother. Yeah. And here it is. We're doing it again, brother, at UFC 263. And I got to say, everything else that's going on on this card... Nothing gets me more excited than this rematch. This one seems like the best chance we have to see another awesome fight. 
and I can't wait to see how it turns out. What's your current hype level for this rematch? Pretty high. It's the rare immediate championship level rematch that actually makes sense. Like not only because of the draw, but also just because these guys had that uh, absolute slobber knocker in the first one. So I got no qualms at all showing up to watch Davy Figs and Brandon Moreno and do it again. I still don't know if he is an assassin who is actually a baby or mm-hmm. if he is an assassin who is charged with the contract killing of babies or if there's meant to be a comma in there. So it's the assassin baby. Uh, so I'm still trying to figure that out. Maybe if he becomes champion, we can get some some word on that. But yeah, I hope that these two guys have another competitive uh, absolute uh, pure six brawl of a fight. I think it's great for 125 pounds. I'm excited to see how Davison Figueredo shows up dressed in the uh, yeah in the pre-fight engagements here because it's a guy who generally uh, doesn't show up in his bathrobe. Generously, generally, he shows up wearing something wild. He's going off as a uh, like a minus two fifty, minus two uh, twenty favorite here, depending on where you get your odds. Brandon Moreno, almost a two to one underdog, but uh, I don't know, man. Like it, it figures to be a competitive again. But like, I guess in your opinion, how do you think Davis and Figueredo comes into this thing with a bigger edge than he did the first time, or do you are you buying into? Uh, the storylines afterwards that that like he maybe wasn't a hundred percent for this. Are you looking for a more dominant performance here from the current flyway champ than we got the first time around? Well, yeah, that is the question for me. Is is it going to be as competitive as it was? Because I know everybody likes to do a thing afterwards where once the fight's over, we find out that you had a collapsed lung and uh, like a, a piece of shrapnel in your skull and all that other stuff. But this one seemed like they. They were not just being like, oh, his knee was tweaked. They were like, he was in the hospital until this morning. You know, like, things had not gone great for him. And, but also, like, other than just, like, physically, like, how he may have been going into this fight, one of the things that we had praised Davison Figueredo for beforehand was, even after he won the belt, he was still out here fighting like he just had nothing to lose. Yeah. And a wide open, really aggressive fighting style. Like he's just going in there to get you out of there as soon as he can. And it's a lot of fun to watch. And it also, though, against Brandon Moreno, we saw some of the drawbacks of that style. Like there, you, you are providing opportunities for the other guy. And especially if you get yourself into a long fight that way, you know, can, can you do that for 25 minutes? And so I don't, I, Something tells me that if you give Davis and Figueredo a chance, like two cracks at figuring you out, he's only going to get better at it. Yeah. And I don't, I think Brandon Moreno acquitted himself really well in that first fight, proved really tough. I mean, just getting up and continuing to fight after that groin shot proves that you're tough as all hell. But I don't know how he goes out there. And I, I don't know if he has the ability to make the better adjustments than Figueredo will. Yeah. And that's that's kind of what I wonder about, like how it's going to be different when those two guys who had 25 minutes to get to know each other get back in there and see like what we've each learned and how we've adjusted our approach based on what we learned. Yeah. If we may borrow a phrase from Chris Lieben, Davis and Figueredo had been smashing cats uh, up to the point of this fight. You know, he had uh, he had stopped Tim Elliott. He had stopped Joseph Benavidez twice. He had stopped Alex Perez at UFC 255. And it had gotten to the point, I think, when they were going to do the the Brandon Moreno thing, which was also like a pretty fast turnaround for Davis and Figueredo. 
that we were all sort of like uh, the the assassin baby okay shrug and then they got into this absolute war which was amazing and it resulted in a draw i do wonder if circumstances conspired a bit leading up to this fight to kind of make it the competitive war that it was i guess we will find out when they get together uh to do it again brother this weekend um i'm still uh, in some ways trying to get my arms around what kind of figure Davis and Figueredo was going to be like, obviously at this weight, we haven't had a ton of promotional success, uh, from previous champions. Davis and Figueredo doesn't strike me as a guy who's going to be like a, a big star in the sport, like a crossover star. But I think MMA people could probably get pretty into him just because of the various things he brings to the table goes out there, uh, looking like a damn giant, if such a thing can accurately be said about a man who weighs in at 125 pounds, but like then just fights, like you said, like uh, like nobody's watching, kind of, and and has had just been murdering people leading up to this. So like, uh, it will be interesting to see how he approaches this rematch, and and you know if he is able to dispatch Brandon Moreno a second time in a way more befitting the other people that he has fought. Like I, I will be fully back on the Davis and Figueredo hype train. Uh, the the issue of the weight seems like a thing that we're always going to at least wonder about with him, right? Because he's struggled in the, in the past at times to make flyweight. You, if you end up in the hospital after your weigh-in before your last title fight, people are going to be paying real close attention to you. You'd like to think that at this point that you got it figured out, just because. If you're the champion and you've had a few cracks at this and you know you're not getting that pound allowance, you better roll in there at 125 pounds and you know what you could be risking if you don't do it well enough to still be able to compete hard on the night. I Do you think that we'll get to a point, this is just going to take a bunch of fights with it being a non-issue before we even stop thinking about it? Yeah, if you're going to be the uh, the champion at 125 pounds, you got to make 125 pounds, but... He is a big guy for that weight. And like, frankly, I was astounded when we were doing the athletic fighter survey a couple of years last year now uh, to find out how much weight some of the guys were cutting to get down to these lighter weight classes, like a lot of weight. Some of these guys are cutting a lot, a lot of weight. And I would have to assume that just from looking at his his physical frame that Davison Figueredo was one of those guys who's cutting an outlandish amount of weight to make 125. So it could can always be a struggle for him, uh, especially as he pushes on into his mid-30s when it gets a little harder to, to do the weight cut, as other people have said. But like, uh, if he's going to be the champion, it's going to be a reality of his, his performances. So I think it... It might be a thing that we're always kind of hanging on, waiting to see. And that's another reason why I want to see how he performs in this fight this weekend. Just to, you know, if, if he comes out and looks dominant against Brandon Moreno, maybe we can put at least some of that behind us. Also, with Brandon Moreno, the more I think about it, the more it, it has to be a baby who is an assassin. Because if, like, if you're hiring somebody just to kill babies... Like, what baby has reached a high enough profile that their killing can be said to be an assassination? That's true. That like, is, it's just a murder. Like, yeah, you're just a, a baby point. murderer. Baby killer is not that great a nickname for a variety of reasons. And, like, you, 
you can kill a baby, but I don't know if you can be said to have assassinated a baby. You know yeah, what I mean? However, yeah, that's, that's a good point. If you're an assassin, that already sounds kind of scary. If you're a baby who's an assassin, that's super scary because, like, you really are going to slip under the radar. Like, they're never going to see it coming. Yeah, very easy that's, to get close to your target if you're yeah. a baby who is also an assassin. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, it wasn't that long ago that Marvin Vittori and Israel Adesanya fought the first time around. It was April of 2018, oddly enough, down there in Glendale, Arizona, where this one goes down at UFC 263 this weekend. The result was a split decision win for Israel Adesanya, uh, arguably, aside from his foray up to light heavyweight to fight Jan Blagovitz at UFC 259, one of the tougher pieces of competition he has had in the UFC. And certainly, you know, during his run as UFC middleweight champion, he has had or has been able to make, I guess you would say, things look easier than he did against Marvin Vittori. But he did win that fight. He was the victor. Marvin Vittori really seems to have have taken some confidence, though, out of the fact that he was able to give Israel Adesanya at least a tough fight the first time around. Uh, I, you just asked me in the round previous, what my hype level was for Davis and Figueredo versus the baby assassin. Uh, is this the rare instance where you're going to have the middleweight title fight up there as the main event and the co-main event is your flyweight title fight. But the thing you're actually the most hyped for is that 125 pound title fight or does the mere presence of Israel Adesanya and the idea that he actually probably does have a lot to lose and a lot on the line here stoke your hype level? I mean, I'm never going to be not excited to see Israel Adesanya fight because regardless of who he's taken on, I think that the guy is a like a special fighter, a special athlete, and like a a special figure in this sport. And so wherever you take him, I'm going to pay attention and, and his fights are important. But as far as like my excitement level, just to watch the specific fight itself, the matchup itself, I'm way more excited to watch the flyweight title fight this time than I am Israel Asanya. Because, you know, we saw this fight. Marvin Vittori is a good fighter, and he has a lot that he brings to the table, too. You know, you can try to sell me on them not liking each other and wanting to yell at each other about who really won the first fight, all that kind of stuff. Marvin Vittori did get closer than anybody else on Israel Asanya's way up to beating him. And still, I think you could argue, like, among middleweights, nobody has gotten closer than Marvin Vittori. And yet, it just, it fails to really light a fire for me. As, like, just from a, an ex- like an anticipation of the fight itself. Yeah. Like, I can't really, I, I think about this when I go, like, okay, this just feels like the next thing that kind of has to happen at middleweight. It doesn't feel like a thing like, oh man, I've had this one circled on the calendar since they first announced it. It doesn't, it doesn't quite get there for me. Do you think that that makes this a weird trap fight for Israel Adesanya? Like, if I had to guess, he strikes me very much, like, from a mental standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, as a guy who is going to really take this one personally, 
especially since Marvin Vittori was was a you know kind of a tough out for him the first time around, Israel Adesanya seems to me like the kind of guy who will really motivate himself around that. Uh, in, and just as far as going out there and improving on that performance and proving to both Marvin Vittori and the world that Israel Adesanya is the better fighter and that the first time was just a couple of inexperienced UFC guys making their way in that division. But I can also see how a guy who at times comes off, you know, like he is legitimately a big fan of the sport, uh, you know, wouldn't wouldn't quite f- feel the same way that he would you know, about a, a fight with Jan Blokovic or about a, f- uh, a fight with somebody uh, who is going to shape up as a higher profile middleweight opponent, uh, you know, whether it be Yoel Romero or Robert Whitaker or Paulo Costa or somebody like that. Like I could see him, I don't want to say taking him lightly, but maybe not getting up for this one as much as he might get up for another fight. Is there a danger there from Israel Adesanya as far as you concerned, or have you seen enough of this guy to think, he's the real deal and he's going to take this one as seriously as he needs to, to, you know, to get, get a better outcome than the first time around. I mean, I, I think that would just be like speculation on our part to be like, Hey, we feel less hyped for this one. And so he will feel less hyped to go in there and do it. I think especially considering how he tried to go up to light heavyweight, fight Yanni blackjacks that didn't work out for him. He lost that fight there. And it seemed like a little bit of a, like, cap on your your goals of becoming like cementing your status as an MMA legend like yeah okay maybe that was a little bit you're 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 reaching a little bit too far at least at the time and so he has to come back down the middle way and so I think that I would think a part of him is coming back down going let me really remind people that I am the man at this division like yeah. I was trying to do something going up against a much bigger guy giving up a lot of weight I lost, a, you know, a fairly close fight, but I lost. And now, though, I want to remind people that down here at 185 pounds, it's a completely different game. Like you, you don't, you're not going to have that over me. And I am the dominant force in this division. And I would think that he probably wants to go out there and really prove it without a doubt against Marvin Vittori. Like I don't see him rolling into this fight coming off a loss and feeling like, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm in a resting on my laurels, resting on my laurels kind of mood. Right. I, I don't see that, especially with, with how things went in that last fight. Yeah, it seems like one he needs to win to me, not only to continue being the champion, but also to sort of solidify his legacy. I think that that Yoel Romero fight is still somewhat fresh in people's minds, just in terms of how weird and and lackluster it was, even though he followed it up with, with that a very impressive win over Paulo Costa. And then on the heels of that one, moved up to fight Jan Blakovic. I think... Uh, it would be good to see Adesanya have a an exciting and dominant performance at 185 pounds here, uh, and I think he knows that, so I think that that's what he will try to do. To what extent do you think he he will continue to be vulnerable, you know, regardless of how he's approached this fight and what his preparations have been, to what extent do you think he will continue to be vulnerable to a Marvin Vittori fighting style against a guy who we just saw pretty much smother the ever-loving shit out of Kevin Holland uh, in his last fight? Uh, using a skill set that arguably could be the best one to try to use against the champion. Yeah, and you know he was joking about that a little bit in their little like Zoom face-off sort of thing, where he's like, "Hey, I'm just going to take you down and hold you, right? Like that's all you need to worry about." And let's see, and and he keeps re- like talking about how in the first fight I took you down, and there's Adesanya then kind of counter like, "Yeah, you didn't do anything with it, and I got up and beat you up." But I think he's gotten better at that aspect of the game as Adesanya has since that first fight, and I also think. 
Just because you saw Jan Blakovic roll in here with like a 30-pound weight advantage or whatever he was dealing with by the time Fight Night rolled around, and he was able to take him down and then keep him there, it doesn't necessarily mean that a bunch of middleweights are going to be able to do that. Because that is like, you might be able to get in there close enough against Cesar Adesanya and take him down, but keeping him there, especially long enough to win a five-round fight or in those big moments to win a five-round fight, I think that that's a lot tougher to do for guys who don't have that same size advantage that light heavyweights would. Yeah. So you're telling me one of the things Marvin Vittori should be doing to get ready for this fight is eating biscuits. Just eat as many biscuits as you can. See, we see what kind of weight advantage you can bring into this thing. I mean, either that or bring in a significant fashion advantage in the form of your Dolce and Gabbana tiger short shirt ensemble. There's no way you will ever convince me that that is some manner of designer apparel. I believe it is. I've been to a swap meet. I know the kind of shirts you can buy there. Hell, I attend the Western Montana Fair every year. I almost guarantee we can go get get some tiger shirts down at the fair that look very much like what Marvin Vittori was sporting over the weekend. I, I tell you, after I watched that interview, I was I sat back. I took stock of my own life. I said... I don't think I have one matching t-shirt short ensemble. Yeah. Like one whole thing where it's like the whole thing, the shirts and the t-shirt. Like the, I don't have one where it's all part of like one cohesive outfit. And now I feel like a loser, like a pathetic loser. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but I think I have the name of a fashion designer who could take care of that problem for you. And the name is August McGregor. If I had to, I haven't looked at the website, but if I had to guess, there's probably some matching shirt and shorts ensembles up for sale well, there. It is summertime. I'm going to need something to wear around the cabana. So I'm going to look into it. And you got those gambling winnings burning a hole in your pocket. Yeah. So there you go. Treat yeah. yourself, my man. There we go. You were all concerned when we first started the 20 bucks you never want to see again. You were like, what are we going to do with the winnings? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to look fly as hell. All right. <laughs> All right, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. This week, Ben, I'm just saying, do you have any notion of how many of your guys are fighting at UFC 263? Yeah. You got Chase Hooper. Chase Hooper is on the the early prelims of this thing. You got your boy, Eric Anders. You got Drew Dober, Hollywood heartthrob. You got Mm -hmm. uh, Damian Maya versus Bilal Muhammad, which is one... Like, frankly, I'm kind of worried how that's going to go just for Ben Folks. And you and I are going to be live on the air for the UFC 263 fight party for this thing, man. Are, are you, do you feel like that's okay? Are, uh, uh, how are you going to handle this? Like, how, how are you going to, this is going to be emotionally fraught for you. We might have some bets down and all your guys are fighting. This is, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried how you're going to handle this on Saturday night. I'm just saying. Just thinking about it while you were talking and laying it out and trying to picture what the evening is going to be like, I could feel my stress stress levels just rising. Yeah. It's going to be tough. We might, it's not going to be easy. We might want to have a nurse present, registered nurse, just ready to administer a sedative or, you know, deal with your blood pressure or something. I don't know. It's going to be a, it's going to be a rocky road. I mean, I think that maybe for all future fight parties, we should just go ahead and take the precaution of having a nurse bring some medical grade sedatives over. Just 
just to liven up the party, maybe if we need them, you know. I, I'm not sure we're talking about the same kind of nurse, you and I, but I'm also <laughs> not just going to say no. I'm going to give you a chance to make your case. I'm just saying. That's what just I'm saying. just saying this week. I'm worried about you, man. Chad, this week, my just saying stuff, I'm going to read to you a headline from MMAfighting.com. Scott Coker, colon, Logan Paul, quote, absolutely welcome to fight in the Bellator cage. And in response to that, I'm just saying, okay, thanks. Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. I was worried there. I was worried for a second that after, you know, Logan Paul gets in this multi-million dollar boxing exhibition bullshit with Floyd Mayweather, they'd go to Scott Coker and be like, but would you be interested in that guy bringing his YouTube fame and all this attention to a Bellator fight or nah? And Scott Coker would just be like, "Mm, I don't see it. Yeah. Mm. But now that I know he is absolutely welcome to fight in the Bellator cage. Okay. Cool. You know what? We're actually all set over here at Bellator. (laughs) We're fine. We're good. In any way, in any case, that is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again one week from today for the proper, always free in your timelines and podcast libraries every week. We'll be breaking down all the stuff that happens at UFC 263. But don't forget, patreon.com slash co-main event. We'll be back there on Wednesday for the live chat. Thursday for the movie club, where apparently we're going to watch Moonstruck. That's right. I feel somewhat moonstruck by that news. Uh, And then Friday, again, for the Power Hour, we always have fun over there. Come join the team, patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, thanks for listening. We are done. We are through. We are out. So defend this to me. How how and why are we we kicking off Nicolas Cage movie month with Moonstruck? Have you seen Moonstruck? Not since I was a child. Well, I think you'll find that it is actually a fantastic fucking movie. And we'll see a very young Nicolas Cage in it, showing us some glimpses of some real Nicolas Cage stuff. Some of the stuff that, that he would become known for. Okay. And so it's going to be a good first week is what you're telling me. We're going to yes. see some, uh, some developing skills. We're going to see a Nicolas Cage where you go, hmm, is this guy going to go Hollywood heartthrob direction? romantic comedy lead for the rest of his career or are there a couple little glimpses that this guy would really just love to do some weird shit if only somebody would give him a chance okay i'm on board i think you know how it goes 